you've got a copy of God's Word, please turn to Matthew 18. Uh, that's where we're going to be. If you don't have a copy of God's Word, we are going to have the text on the screen. Um, not all of 18, but uh, that's where we're going to be this morning. If you were here last week, or if you're new or visiting, what we were talking about last week was the great transfiguration of Christ, how he was transformed uh, before them. And so now, uh, they're, they're coming around in the, in the towns, and that's where we're going to be. But uh, as you turn there, as you find your way there, as you refresh yourself with what we talked about, I want to ask you, what are you good at? So I think all of us are, are good at something. Each of us has a talent. And, and so maybe you're saying, oh, Pastor, you can't ask us that because then that would show pride. No, no, it's, it's okay. It's okay. If you're good at something, then that's good that you're good at that. What would it take to make you great at that? So if you're good at something, what would it take to make you great? Now, I don't know if you've heard this or not. I have heard, perhaps you have too, that it takes something like 10,000 hours. 10,000 hours to become great at something, to master something. And so if you think of that, um, that's nine years. Nine years of working five days a week for four hours per day, at whatever task that is, whatever hobby you have, to become great at it. Now, perhaps you've heard of goats. No, I don't mean Baba Black Sheep. What I mean is the greatest of all times, the G-O-A-T-S, the goats. Perhaps you've heard of some goats. I'm going to have a list for you here. When we think of goats, we often think of not Baba Black Sheep, I hope. Maybe you did, but we often think of sports, right? If you're into hockey, maybe you know the names of Gordie Howe or Wayne Gretzky. If you're not into hockey, maybe uh, baseball. Maybe you know the names of Mickey Mantle or Babe Ruth, right? Or maybe baseball is not your thing and you know some other sports like Bill Russell or Michael Jordan or perhaps Joe Montana or even more recently Tom Brady. Or since the Olympics is going on, we have to at least tip our hat to those that only come around every four years, right? People like Mike Phelps, Simone Biles, or Hussein Bolt that's on TV right now. I think I think that's still going on right now. They were robbed, weren't they? Bummer, man. But there's other goats, right? There's goats of other things, too, right? Like goats of science, like perhaps names like Isaac Newton, Marie Curie, Albert Einstein, Galileo. These are names in science that we all know about because we're reading textbooks as we're growing up, and we, we know these names. These are the greatest of all times. But have you ever stopped to think, who are the goats? Who are the greatest of all times when it comes to spiritual things? If you're anything like me, probably at the... At the top of your list, Christ aside, right, is uh, somebody like Paul. You have the Apostle Paul who wrote most of the New Testament, who seems like such a theological giant. Now, again, if we're going outside of Scripture, perhaps you have other people like Martin Luther, John Calvin, or pretty much any. Take a dart and throw it at any of the Puritans, and you're probably going to hit somebody, right? Or or you have uh, people like Charles Spurgeon, or even what we would consider more contemporary, although he has passed away, Somebody like Billy Graham. I want to give you a secret as we talk about the great kingdom, as we know that Jesus is greater than, and here's the secret of the kingdom. You don't have to spend 10,000 hours or nine years or whatever to be great in the kingdom. In fact, the secret of the kingdom is you today, this very afternoon. In fact, right now as you sit in these pews can pursue greatness. Even now, 
Now, to make sure all my theological ducks are in a row, I also want to tell you that, of course, if you are saved, you will continue to grow in this greatness. That's what we Christians use the 50-cent word of sanctification, right? That just means growing in this holiness, growing in this applicable knowledge of God. And, of course, that's going to happen incrementally, but the fact of the matter is, and the hope that I have for you this morning as we look at this chapter of Matthew 18, is that you would be encouraged to and actually see yourself in the pursuit of greatness. That's what I want for you. So as we get into the text, let's pray. God, our Father in heaven, we do thank you for today. We ask, O Holy Father, that you have sanctified this day for your own service and worship, for the furthering of in the way of salvation. You have made this most gracious promise to us in this text that when two or three are gathered together in your name, you will be there with us in our midst. And so we come to you now and we ask that you might perform this promise unto us. As we gather together in your name and pray unto you that you would hear and speak your holy, blessed word over us. So to sanctify our hearts by the Holy Spirit, that we might perform these holy services that you have called us to. And so by doing, bring you the glory that your name deserves. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. So in proper preaching fashion, I've got three steps for you this morning. Um, Unfortunately, they do not all rhyme. Ran out of time for that, right? But my wife teases me about that. That's a behind-the-scenes pass for you. And so here's the steps that I have for you this morning to greatness, because I want for you to pursue that. The first step to greatness is going to be humility. Uh, as we're going to see in the text here, this first step of greatness is humility. Now, what's happened here? This is just after the transfiguration. Some of these uh, uh, disciples, three of them, went up on the mountain with him, saw Jesus transformed. They're coming down the mountain, and they're thinking to themselves, and Scripture tells us that they're arguing among themselves about who's going to be the greatest because they now realize who it is they've been hanging with. And so, of course, like them, they're thinking to you, we're on the all-star team. We're going all to the Silver Dome. So I want to know who's on the bench and who's the starting lineup, right? So that's what these guys are talking about. And then Jesus, hearing this in verse 2, He calls a child, brings it before them, and he puts the child in their midst, and he says, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And so as we look at this, Jesus makes it very clear. Several things. Firstly, these men think so highly of themselves right now. Think about it. For us as church-going people, can't we sometimes fall into the same category? I mean, if we're honest, sometimes don't we see other people out on the street, in our jobs, around corners, places that we go, kids, parents that our kids play with, or, or whatever that might be, and we think to ourselves, man, praise God, I'm not like that guy or that girl. Praise God that I've got it together. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that I'm so fresh and so clean, Right? The fact of the matter is, this is exactly what the disciples were saying here, too. <coughs> Jesus knew it, and so he calls them out about it. He brings a child before them. He says, truly, I say to you that if you don't humble yourselves, you don't have to worry about being great in the kingdom because you're not even in it. 
And so the doorway to even entering into this greatness is the humility of childlike faith. This word turn there in the text, in the, in the Greek. Now, we, we use Greek sometimes because it's fun and it gives more meaning to that and stuff like that. And you don't have to be a Greek scholar to understand the word. Let me just encourage you with that this morning. You can just read the Bible in English and you're going to get what you need to get out of it. But in the Greek here, this word turn is slightly different from that of the word for repent, but it's on the same vein. It's implied here in the text to turn, to actually put your faith in, to have an open belief in. He says, unless you humble yourself like this child, you're not even in the kingdom, let alone great in it. We think back to King David in some of his psalms, you know, create in us a new heart, O God. He says the worship of God is a broken and contrite spirit. Let me tell you two different ways that we can have pride in our lives and we need to pursue humility. We often talk about the one, and so it's going to be so familiar to you, I'm only going to spend a brief moment on it, but the second one is really, I think, another pitfall that we fall into that is less discussed. Here they are. The first one is pride in the sense that we all normally understand it with is somebody's britches are a little too big, right? That's probably all I need to say about that. But the second one is this. Sometimes our pride is the opposite. You have the pride of people that think that they are so good that maybe they don't need Jesus, right? Or you also have the people that think they are so bad that Jesus can't save them. Listen, who do you think that you are? I just want to encourage you this morning that a lot of us, I think, are sometimes blind to this camp. If that's the case and you're married, just ask your spouse. They'll tell you. If not, ask a sibling. They will also tell you. But the fact of the matter is this one I think we don't talk about so often. And I want to encourage you with that side this morning. Think about what this might have looked like to the child. We often talk about from the perspective from the, um, from the disciples or from the crowd, but think about this child who was brought in before these grown men and was then used as an illustration of what those who enter the kingdom look like. If this child was anything like <clears throat> my daughter, the face would have been cherry tomato red. If this child was anything like my son, Asher, of course, he would have just like, started pointing to himself and maybe done a jig. I don't know. But the fact of the matter is, think about the perspective from this child that they are brought in and put before these grown men, and Jesus tells them, unless you have the faith of this child, you're not even going to go into the kingdom. Do you think that that child felt worthy to be used as that illustration? Probably not. And so often we talk about, and in the text, I think it's right, Jesus is talking about this sense of pride, right? The sense of pride that your britches are a little too big or you need to let some air out of that head of yours. But on this side, brother or sister in Christ, if you are struggling or just if you're new here today or if you know a family member that is struggling with the idea of saying, I am too dirty to come to Jesus, let me just tell you, that's exactly who he came to seek and to save. And the text is going to go on to tell us exactly that. But this kind of pride isn't always talked about. But the fact of the matter is, humbleness, humility that Jesus is talking about here, humility is one of those things where the second that you think that you've attained it, you actually haven't. See, humility is the art of not thinking about yourself, not thinking of yourself too less. I think that's where these people tend to fall into that camp. But it's just thinking of ourselves not at all. That's humility. And also, he brings this child before them because we understand some of, these, uh, some of these characteristics of humility is to be tender and to be teachable. 
And so as we sit in a place like this, and you have some guy like this who's reading God's Word, it doesn't really matter what he says or what he looks like. If he's reading God's Word, you ought to be under that authority. Are you tender and are you teachable to God's Word? And so we also see, as we're going to see in this text, there's going to be a change of our attitudes that are required here. So to come into this kingdom, the first step is humility. To pursue humility is to pursue greatness in the kingdom. So I hope that you will pursue that. But as we move forward in verses 3 or 4, 5, and 6 through 9, we're going to see this change. We're going to see a change of attitude on self. That's what humility does. A change of attitude of self has a correct view of self. Not too low and not too high. That yes, we're a sinner, but yes, we can be saved by grace. That we're not too good for God to save us. We need Christ, and yet we are still in his care. But the second change that's going to take place is a change of attitude towards society. You know, if we're honest as Americans, we're, we're pretty blessed and a lot of times pretty arrogant. Now, patriotism is fine, and if you fly a flag outside of your, outside of your house, then you know, that's fine. I served in the military, so I'm not taking anything away to anybody who's patriotic. But I do want to just give you a gut check and tell you that this, as beautiful it is and as the freedoms that we have here, this is not our home if we're in Christ. Our home is the heavenly kingdom to come. And so we can fight for this country and we can lift it up and we can take some joy in living here, but really don't be prideful about this country because, by the way, when did you ask your mother to have you here? I mean, if you didn't choose this as the place of your birth, none of us did, by the way, in case that was confusing to you, then can you really take pride in something that doesn't truly belong to you and by which is not your home to begin with? And then just think of our society at large. As as we herald pride in general, it seems to be a good thing for our culture. And so humility is a change of self a change of attitude of our view of a view of these things, a change of attitude of view of ourselves, a change in attitude of the view of society, and a change in attitude of the view of sin. Humility is understanding that sin is sin. A lot of times we say things to each other like, "Oh yes, I made a mistake," or "Oh yeah, I my I, I had a slip of the tongue." Listen, brother, sister in Christ, we need to have a correct view of what sin is. Sin is sin. Again, I've said this for other things. You, you can try to put lipstick on it, right? But a pig is still a pig. And so true humility is the first step to greatness in the kingdom. The next step, the second step to greatness in the, in the kingdom is love. Now, this is a big section here, so we're going to camp out on love. And we should. In fact, if you've uh, been to Allegan Bible Church for a while, you know that we're uh, about that phrase, love acts, because we do believe that love actually is an action, especially the kind of love that Scripture calls us to, especially the kind of love that we have experienced. And so as we look at this, the second greatest step to, the, the, the second step to greatness is, is love. So if you go to Matthew 6 through 9, uh, we must seek to protect each other what it's talking about here. But whenever, uh, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and be thrown into the depths of the sea, drowned in the depths of the sea, excuse me. Uh, woe to the world for temptations 
to sin. For it is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one whom the temptation, who, through whom the temptations come. And if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into eternal fire. In verse 9, and if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the fire of hell. And so this is what I mean. The, the, the second step to, to greatness is love, and we manifest that by seeking to protect each other. So if you're a note taker, that's your cue to write that down, to protect each other. These are the responsibilities of a mature and a maturing believer. If we cause spiritual harm to another disciple, there is grave punishment that we are going to face. In fact, it says here this is a punishment worse than death by drowning. Which, for those of you who have never... I used to have this reoccurring nightmare. I don't know what this says about me. It's probably because my, of, my, of my grandmother. When I was three, she came in to the room, and she said, I, I got to go visit the John. And I said, Grandma, I'm right here. And then everybody laughed at me. Because I didn't know a toilet was also called a john. So anyway, I have this reoccurring dream sometimes where I'm stuck inside of a toilet. I know. And it's somebody flushes the toilet. And it, it's a toilet that I can't open the lid. And as they, as they flush this toilet, I have no choice. I'm either drown or I go down this hole. And I don't know where the hole leads. And it's, there's darkness beyond it. I, I've, I've since got over this dream. It's okay. You don't have to write my therapist or anything like that. But... But the fact of the matter is, this is a punishment worse than death by drowning, of which I can relate to, I suppose, in my deepest and darkest fears. It says this is a punishment of eternal fire. When we cause someone to sin, when we are the, the reason of stumbling and sinning to somebody else, it would have been better for us to be drowned in the depths of the sea. Do you think of your testimony, of your life, in such terms? Because don't answer that question, I know, on the average day, you, you just, we just don't. It tells us that we should avoid at all costs causing others spiritual harm to another. And in fact, we should go so far as to make an enormous self-sacrifice to do so. Some of you are going to get a little irritated, so I'm, I'm just going to give you, I'm going to take a sip of this for a minute. You get ready, you put on your pads. We just had a huge pandemic which broke churches apart. I'm on Facebook forums with other pastors. I talk to other pastors, not only here, but miles apart, different things. And we weep together over our congregations that are backbiting one another. Over something, by the way, that in Scripture isn't really a sin issue per se. And during the sermon, everyone could hear a pin drop, right? But here is the extraordinary, the extraordinary steps we're supposed to take. Look, look what it says here. He says, if your hand causes you to sin, then cut it off. This is, in my idea, this is this analogy of doing something. What is it that you're actually physically doing that might be causing somebody else to sin? 
Now, I don't know what that is for you. I suppose I could stand up here and have some kind of list that I would give, which would only continue to bring offense to you guys, so I'm not going to do that. What I'm going to do is I'm going to ask after the service and before the service I have already asked, and so right now I believe that it's happening, that the Holy Spirit is pricking your conscience through your own conscience, and you're dealing with the Holy Spirit, that something in your life God is going to bring to your mind, something that you are currently doing that could be a stumbling block to somebody else. I just want to ask you, is it worth it if this is the consequence? The next thing he says there is, is the foot, right? I think this is the analogy of the going somewhere. So it's the doing of something or it's just the, the going somewhere. So where is it that you're going? And then lastly, the eye, the viewing, right? This should be a deep word to parents and grandparents who are here this morning. What kind of things are you viewing What kind of things are you letting your kids view that might be causing stumbling blocks and sin to happen in their lives? Because he says, it would be better if you were to cut off hands and feet, and it would be better if you were to go in a quadriplegic and blind into life. Isn't it interesting that he says that? Into life? Well, what's this? Well, this is the land of the dying, and afterwards is the land of the living. Interesting that Jesus says that here. He says, it would be better that you would be going into life in these manners than it would be for you to go into hell fully functioning. And so as we look at this, first step to greatness is love. The first step, or one, one aspect of that that we're going to cover from the text today, there's many aspects of this, but this second great step is love, and how we see that in the text today is to actually protect one another from falling into sins. Now, he's going to go and continue that theme with the next one, so if you're a note-taker, that we must actually seek to pursue one another. He talks about that in 12 through 13. So what do you think, he says? He says, what do you think if a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray? Does he not leave the 99 on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly, I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the 99 that never went astray. Just, just uh, don't raise your hand for this, but, but I just want to ask you, uh, by the way, this is a parallel in Luke 15. So if you would like to write in your margin, I'm sure if you have a study Bible and has like the little letters or the little numbers that are on the side there, I'm sure in the footnotes it says Luke 15. You can just mark. It's okay to write in your Bibles, and so you can write that in the side margin if you want to do that, but you can write Luke 15. And it says there, and, I, and this is why I brought that, is that, actually when he finds it, it says that he throws it on his shoulders, carries it home, and then has a party, calls his friends to have a party over the lost sheep that was missing that is now there. So as we talk about this second step being love, we must seek to actually pursue one another. We are not to be looking down on one another when somebody is going to stray. In fact, I want to ask the question, how many of you on a regular basis would notice if one of your brothers or sisters wasn't here? And how many Sundays would it take for you to notice? This shepherd, now I understand you might say, well, I'm not the shepherd, you're the shepherd. That's fine. But do you love one another? Touche, Pastor wins. Okay, so, so, but here's what I'm going with this, right? Here, here's the fact, okay? They have a hundred sheep. Now, a hundred sheep, and he's with them, shepherding them. And the dude notices one that's left. I don't know if they're like, 
assert a commercial, and they all have numbers on their sides, and so he just saw, and they always, the sheep always walk single file, and 100 wasn't there, so he's like, oh, that's not right. I, I have no idea how this happened, but I can tell you, I don't know if I would notice if one out of the 100 was gone, and I was the shepherd. Second thing we notice here is that he actually leaves the other 99 that seem to be healthy. And let's just assume he's a good shepherd in the text since Jesus is talking about this. Let's assume that on the mountain where he leaves the 99, by the way, where did the transfiguration take place? On a mountain. And so what he's saying in the text here is, I'm leaving those 99 sheep in the presence with God in their care, and I'm going to leave the mountain, and I'm going to go after, and I'm going to find the sheep. And as we know from David, bears... Lions, they attack. Wolves, right? And so he is entrusting them to God. He's going and he's pursuing the one because, quite frankly, it is more likely that a wolf or a lion or a bear is going to attack the one that's not with the rest of the flock, that's not with the shepherd, than it is going to attack the rest of the 99. And so not only does love notice when a sheep isn't there, the love actually pursues the sheep. And then lastly, love rejoices. And it's not just him. He calls his friends and his neighbors. And I think this is severely telling to churches in America today. Where we show up and we sit in the pew and we get whatever we're going to get out of it and then we go along our way and like not everybody knows each other's name anymore. And I, I understand there's churches out there that that's impossible for that to be the case. I'll get Bible because it's possible here. You can do it. And I would, I would ask you to try to pray for one another. Because the fact of the matter is, as I said earlier, love acts. And so the third part of this, again, if you're a note taker, is that we must seek to restore each other. This section in 1520 is is referred to as church discipline. Absolutely. I don't even know what the heading of it is there. It probably says church discipline. I don't know. But what it should say, I think, if I was writing this. And, And by the way, the headings aren't divinely interpreted. That's just Onderfin or whatever, you know, they put those in there, so it's okay for us to doctor those a little bit. But I think it should, yeah, I think it should be called uh, restoration of, of the broken. Not necessarily church discipline, although that is what churches do, and this is how we discipline one another. But we must actually seek to restore each other. Firstly, I just want to point out to you that, that as we look at this, at, at verse 15, you have to be very clear with where you start. It says, if your brother does what? Offends you? Plays different music than you? Wears clothes you don't like? Uh, happens to have facial hair and, and you don't? Or drives a fancy car? Or whatever, right? So, no, no, no. It says, if your brother sins, sins. Friends, if you can't point to Scripture, then it's preference. And then also, if your brother sins against you, personally. Not if he sins against your great aunt, Virginia, or whatever. I have a grandma, Virginia, so I use that. It's fair. And I understand you might say, well, we're from the South, and uh, blood is thicker than water. And I would say, well, then praise God that you've been washed by the blood of the Lamb, so act like a Christian, okay? And so the fact of the matter is, it says, if a brother sins against you, and then what are we supposed to do? Talk about him behind their back and try to get a party to run him out of the church? No, go and tell him his fault. Now, men, 
here's, here's, I'm just going to, I'm going to, I'm going to do a not politically correct thing, and I'm going to make a gender bias right now. You ready? Men generally handle this by just not addressing the issue and pretending like it never happened. And women generally address the issue by telling everybody but the person that it happened. Okay? And so the fact of the matter is, for men or for women, it says, if your brother or sister, let's modernize it, I guess, if you want, if your brother or sister sins against you, go and tell him or her his or her fault between you and them alone. You, you, you get it, right? Go to them one-on-one. This is the first step, which is private correction. The grounds of it is sin, and there is a process for it. Now, I was in the military, and I'm here to tell you, you don't jump the chain of command. And this is God's word. It's not even written by the DOJ or, or whatever. If, if he listens to you, you have gained your brother. By the way, if we are really seeking to practice love, if we are really seeking to practice humility, the chances of this will be greater. If we as a church are in the, in the practice of really dealing and discipling one another, then this is a greater chance that this is going to happen. But this is step one. If your brother or sister sins against you, go to them privately, tell them, and hopefully it will be rectified. The next step then is small group clarification. Aren't you all happy? that we are about in the business to be launched in small groups so we can be about the business of correcting one another and helping one another and building each other up? There you go. Just waiting for it. Uh, Verse 16 says, But if he does not listen, so only if the first one is unsuccessful, if he does not listen, take one or two others along. Why? So that you can beat him up? So that you have enough people to to, to tie him up and give him Chinese water torture until until he obeys? No. It's so, so that every charge by either party, by the way, and we often think it means go get two or three people that are going to be on my side. Go get two or three people that I know are in my corner so we can really just bum rush this person and just jump them, spiritually jump them. No, it says gather two or three others so that every charge from either side may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. It's not just a he said, she said battle. It's legitimate, and it has to be by unbiased parties. That's not normally how we do it. And that's small group clarification. And then the next step, then, is by whole church admonition. If he, she, refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. Now, here's the caveat. I think here, what we often think, what I often think, if I just read this text, what I often think is what that means is that somebody gets up here in front of everybody and says, I want to tell you about Joe Dirt, who has uh, done whatever he's done, and just so now everybody knows about it. That is the wrong way to handle that. I think what he's talking about here when he talks about tell it to the church, I think what he's talking about there is tell it to those who are in positions of authority at the church to actually actually perform church duties, leadership in the church, which for, for us would be the elders of the church. And then as elders of the church, depending on what the sin is, we would hopefully, by God's grace, have wisdom to decide if it was something that needs to be shared with the entire congregation or not, or how much, or how little, and what that looks like. 
Because the fact of the matter is, somebody who's in a position of mine, if we get to this section and it's shared with the church, it probably needs to be shared with the entire church. But praise God for his mercy and his grace and his long-suffering that for most of us, depending on the kind of sin, I don't think it needs to go to everybody in the church. Not everybody needs to know your business. But the fact of the matter is, this is the protocol. And so please, right now, mark this down. Put it in your Bible. Sear it into your brain. Please never make me get to this area. Because as your pastor, I have to. And you're going to be super mad at me. If that ever happens, and you're going to blame me, and you're going to be like, I can't believe you're doing this, and I'm going to say, bro, or sis, Matthew 18, you've left me no choice. This is not my fault. I am doing this because I, what's the second greatest step? Love you. And then lastly, corporate excommunication. If they refuse to listen, even to the church, let them be to you as a Gentile or a tax collector. And a lot of us think, or our, um, gosh, what's it called? They drive, they, they drive horse and buggies and they don't have mustaches. Amish. In their culture, they shun, right? And they just kick you out of the culture altogether. And I think that that's what we often think. Let them be to you as somebody who you don't talk to anymore. No, no, no. Let them be to somebody who you constantly go to and love and plead through the gospel of Christ Jesus that instead of being restored, it appears that they've never been purchased in the first place. And so instead of being restored, what they actually need is relationship. What they actually need is repentance. What they actually need is salvation. And so that's how you treat them as a Gentile or a tax collector. You go to them with the gospel. And so what this is going to find out is we're going to find out if this is a person of repentance or if this is a renegade. Remember, they went out from us because they were never from among us. This is also sharing with what the authority of the church is. And so if you're here and you're kind of wondering what the authority of the church is and why we do this thing called church and why we become members and stuff, this is why. And then lastly, we see here, there is blessing in this because we are doing exactly what God has called us to do. And then third, the third and final step as we move through this, the third step to greatness is forgiveness. And maybe for some of you, this is going to be the hardest step. Because the fact of the matter is, some of you, and I know who you are, some of you were wounded, and I mean wounded deeply. But the third step to greatness in the kingdom is forgiveness. Matthew 18, 21 through 22. We're not going to cover the whole rest of the text. We're just going to cover Peter because I love Peter. This is what he says. Peter come up to him and said, Lord, how often will, uh, will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? And if you've heard sermons on this, you've heard pastors say, and Peter was being really generous with seven, right? Uh, probably. And as many as seven times, and Jesus quickly corrects him. He says, no, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. And so what Jesus, in, in effect, and through this next parable, is going to explain to them, you have no idea how wicked you truly are. None of us. Self-included. This is why Paul, who wrote the New Testament, pretty much, right, says to himself, of all sinners, I am chief among sinners. If you think you're bad, just wait till you get a load of this guy, Paul might say. And so what we need to understand is before Holiness, the standard of holiness, that's the standard. Not just if you've been coming to church a long time. Not just how long you've been a Christian. Not just the kind of car you drive or the clothes you wear or the house you live in or the job you have or the level of education or if you're married or not or how many kids you got or 
if you went to public school or private school or homeschool or whatever, or whatever categories that we like to put up in our congregations and in our societies, you have no idea how filthy and wretched that you are before a holy God. And through Christ, that's an okay place. That's kind of a dull place for an amen. I'll, well, I'll take it. But here, you know, but through Christ, you have been washed. You have been cleaned. You are now a new creation in Christ Jesus. And so if that is your level of forgiveness, as he says with this parable, how much more should you be willing to forgive? And, and, and also, the sin that people commit truly isn't against you because it says all sin is against whom? God. Because it's his standard of righteousness that they're not living against. When, when they're not living with his standards of righteousness, you are hurt. Think of any sin you want to think of in your life. It has hurt you because that person is not living God's standards of righteousness, and so the fallout is your pain. And so how should we not forgive these folks? And again, I understand, and, and, I, and I am not minimizing deep hurts. I'm not. But what, I, what I'm telling you here is that Jesus has guaranteed us that they will either be dealt with by the blood on the cross, by him, or they will be dealt with in hell. And so justice will be served. And so the fact of the matter is, he tells us, in fact, that we are actually obligated to forgive these debts. And maybe that's a hard word for you to hear this morning. And if it is, then I, then I am sorry. And I would love to talk with you and minister to you and disciple you through that. But Jesus says in the, in the last part of this, if you have a copy of God's word, you should turn there to 32 through 35. He says, then this master summoned him, this one who didn't forgive all this debt. And he said, you wicked servant. He calls unforgiveness wicked. He said, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should you, and should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had had mercy on you? And in anger, righteous anger, this master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. And then in 35, and here is the sting, so also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. And for some of us this morning, that is a very painful truth to swallow. But brother or sister, by God's grace, by God's mercy, by the power of the Holy Spirit, you can forgive. So the main point, and hopefully you've got it today, the main point of today's whole message is simply this. Greatness in Christ's kingdom, in this community, is built upon humility, love, and forgiveness. One of the things my football coach always used to tell me is, good is the enemy of great. And so, brother, sister, you might be good. But do you want to pursue great? Don't be settled with good. Because the fact of the matter is, and I hope that the case is for you, is that I want a marriage greater than the one I have today. I want children and to be a parent 
to a greater degree than I am today. I want Allegan Bible Church to have a greater ministry than it does today. I want it to be greater. I want you to be greater. I want our impact on the town to be greater. I want my own spirituality to be greater. I want my evangelism, my preaching, my teaching to be greater. I want you to be more and more and more equipped. I want you to be greater. That is what I want for you. In fact, there is a book coming out October 26th, 2021. It was written by a man named Les Brown. It's not out yet. It's coming out. Les Brown, the author, the title of his book is The Greatness Within You. The subtitle is Believe in Yourself and Discover Your Potential. Well, I'm sorry to tell you that there is another book that's been written. It's called The Holy Bible. Uh, Jesus Christ tells us in that book that uh, greatness is actually not within, greatness is actually without, that there is no good, no, not one, no one seeks after God, but he tells us exactly how, and I just told you how today, how we can pursue greatness in the kingdom, and you don't have to wait 10,000 hours, you can pursue greatness this very afternoon. He also tells us that this greatness without, Jesus does, uh, isn't within, but instead of believing in ourselves to discover our potential, what we really need to do is believe in Jesus and then allow him to deliver our potential, his potential, through us. And so I think this is a very clear case of where less is actually not more. So let's pray. God, our Father, we understand that it is only outside of myself, it is only outside of ourselves, it is only in Christ Jesus that greatness is attainable. You have given us every tool that we need by your Holy Spirit to pursue greatness. God, it is my prayer, it is our prayer this morning that our faith tomorrow would be greater than it is today. That our ministry tomorrow would be greater than it is today. That our perseverance tomorrow would be greater than it is today. That our love for you would be greater tomorrow than it is today. And so as we look at this text this morning. Do not allow it to leave us unfruitful, but rather perform your promise as we gather here together. Be in our presence. Do not allow your word to pass by us. Let us be doers, not just hearers. Let us pursue greatness. It's in your name we pray. Amen.